very long time. What is your verdict? Find the defendant guilty. The deadly narcotic. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks and Ian Roberts look at current events, with a focus on the recent decision of the Federal Court where it was held that a common law duty of care was owed by the Commonwealth Environment Minister to the Children of Australia with respect to climate change and approval of the extension of a coal mine. They also look at the conclusion of the defamation proceedings brought by Christian Porter against the ABC, and Clive Palmer appeals his loss to Twisted Sister over copyright. Frank is then joined by Declan Byrne and Fahim Anwar to discuss the upcoming CPD on the new regulations to the Design Building Practitioners Act and how to plead a claim for breach of the statutory duty of care under section of that act for defects causing economic loss. This is our episode seven. Sorry for the time between drinks, but uh, it's good to be back and talking to you about law. Uh, welcome this morning, Ian Roberts. How are you, Ian? Oh, well, thanks, Frank. How are you? Good to be back. Yeah, yeah. Well, very well, very well. It's obviously been very interesting times over the last little while. Uh, obviously, the most important things um, that have happened re- relate to our former Attorney General. But be- before we get to that, um, there was an extremely interesting decision in the uh, Federal Court on the 27th of May 2021, um, titled Sharma by her litigation representative, Sister Marie Bridget Arthur, and the Minister for the Environment. The uh, medium neutral citation for that is square brackets 2021 and square brackets FCA 560. And it concerned an action brought by children in a representative capacity for indeed the children of Australia in respect of the Minister for the Environment's obligations, a common law duty of care when considering whether or not to allow the extension of a coal mine in Gunnedah pursuant to section 130 and 133 of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act 1999. Now, Ian, I'm sure that you've had a chance to at least catch the decision, uh, if not perhaps study the long judgment in which His Honour Justice Bromberg gave a very detailed analysis of the law and the science associated with the environmental issues arising from this application, but what have you been able to make of it so far? Well, I haven't been through the detail of the entire judgment, I've got to say, but it, um, it's interesting. The, a lot of the facts that supported the existence of the duty appeared to be uncontested. Some of the conclusions that um, His Honour drew about the effect of the increase in temperatures compared to pre-industrial uh, age are pretty startling. For example, um, there's a finding that well, once we get beyond three, we're sort of at a tipping point that will take us beyond four degrees above pre-industrial level. And he said that some of the effects will be, for example, Great Barrier Reef uh, and Australia's eastern eucalypt forest will no longer exist due to the repeated severe bushfires. That's pretty scary. But the the basis for the duty of care, he set out in quite some detail the, the factual background um, supporting the duty and when that's all analysed, it all seems to fall into place that there would be a duty. The plaintiffs failed on the discretionary grounds based on whether or not there was an apprehension that the duty would be breached. But the existence of the duty is a pretty significant finding, and I think it's the first of its type in the world. 
I read somewhere. Was it your understanding? Certainly in the context of a, a common law duty, as that would be understood, tracing back to the English common law. I am aware that there was a decision in the Netherlands recently where there was uh, an adjudication in respect of um, the obligations of fossil fuel emitters and the future of uh, those matters and the and the population but i would have assumed that that would have been dealt with under european civil law rather than obviously english common law which does not apply in any way shape or form uh, in the netherlands but i agree that the the analysis was very interesting starting from the proposition that there was no issue in the case that human emissions of co2 are largely responsible for the warming of the earth's surface and that the Earth's surface temperature was increasing and that humans were primarily responsible. The minister also accepted that the average surface temperatures will continue to rise and that Australia will experience more drought, sea level rises and extremes of heat, rainfall and fire-related weather. In the context of the common law duty, the decision focused on the question of foreseeability of future harm and the relationship between the person who has caused or contributed to the harm and the persons who may be harmed. And indeed, uh, it was held that the evidence demonstrated that a reasonable person in the position of the minister would foresee that by reason of the extension of this particular coal mine, which was anticipated to result in the deposit of an additional 100 million tonnes of CO2 in the atmosphere, which would have a small but measurable impact or increase in the global average surface temperatures was required to consider the consequential increase in risk to the children exposed to by that fact, including the risk of death or other personal injuries. So it really was a very significant analysis of the matters that need to be considered in the context of these approvals, and in particular, what needs to be weighed, not only the question of foreseeability, but uh, on the one hand, the ability to control the potential harm in question, the extent of vulnerability, and the extent to which the children rely upon the minister to avoid those consequences. But on the other hand, the fact that the, the need for coherence in the law requires a broad statutory discretion to be conferred on the minister, and that it not be impermissibly impaired by the imposition of a common law duty of care. Uh, but you're right in terms of the final determination as to an injunction restraining the minister from exercising the power in a manner that would permit the extraction of the coal. That injunction was not given on the basis that the court was not satisfied that there was a reasonable apprehension that the minister would breach her duty of care by uh, allowing the mine extension to proceed. So that was an extremely interesting and I think momentous decision in the context of climate change and the legal obligations of parties where they are required to consider such matters. Interesting to see what happens if the Minister did exercise the discretion to approve the extension and whether the applicants or the, the plaintiffs in that case take any further action or do anything to try and overcome the um, decision having regard to the findings of fact and the existence of the duty that's already been made. Yes, it's difficult uh, 
although not being a scientist, I suppose I shouldn't speculate too much, but I think it's difficult to envisage any conditions that could be attached to such an approval that would uh, ameliorate or uh, even minimise the risks and uh, harm that were the subject, as it was indicated, of uncontested evidence as to the impact of the extraction of this volume of coal and the uh, imposition of the tonnage of CO2 caused by its burning. But as you say, it'll be interesting to see how things go moving forward. Now, moving to another topic that's obviously been occupying both legal and public circles for some time, the defamation proceedings involving Christian Porter has been very interesting in the last little while. Firstly, we had the whole question of the ability of our colleague Sue Chrysanthu of Senior Counsel to continue to appear in the proceedings and the decision of Justice Thorley in that regard. And then, of course, the whole of the proceedings um, were brought to a conclusion by the agreement that was reached between the parties, which involved discontinuance. Um, firstly, uh, dealing with uh, the events of last week, as we record, and what did you make of the ruling with regards to Sue Crisanto, or Celebrity Sue, as I understand <laughs> Justinian's taken to calling her? <laughs> Great name. Uh, well, what really surprised me is it took three days to hear it, I've got to say. Um, those sorts of cases come up from time to time, and I, and I think the decision was largely based on the perceived risk and why take the risk in the circumstances of the case. I must say, I wasn't all that surprised that it came down the way it did. As I said, I was surprised it took as long as it did to hear it. But anyway, it's all come to naught now because the case is all over, which was a bit of an abrupt and uh, was it last, yesterday, I think it was, yesterday afternoon it was announced? Yes, as we record, it was yesterday afternoon. Yeah. And and the outcome of that, as I understand it, is the only thing anyone is paying for is I think the ABC agreed to pick up the costs of the mediation, but everyone is walking away and paying their own costs and wearing their own loss. Yeah, well, I don't want to say um, anything much more about the our, our friend Sue's position in all of this. I used to share chambers with Sue at Blackstone. She's an excellent uh, barrister in this area. And uh, certainly I would have thought it would be uh, an impact or a loss for Mr. Porter not to have her services in the case. But moving forward to the uh, uh, actual resolution, as with all of these things, I think it's <laughs> it's almost a situation that we've all found that whenever there's a settlement um, of any sort of litigation, each party tries to take what they can from it to claim some sort of um, vindication or victory or, or outcome that they were satisfied with. And obviously, Mr. Porter was out there immediately following the discontinuance right on the front foot, using in very florid adjectival terms uh, what he described as a, a victory for himself and a humiliating defeat for the ABC. But when you strip away the... Uh, uh, the descriptions and the the takeouts that each party seeks to make, as you say, unusually, I suppose, for any sort of defamation settlement whereby the plaintiff gets a win, if I can put it that way. Uh, there's no damages to be paid. There's no apology given. Uh, there's a minor cost order, I would have thought, in the scheme of things, and the article remains posted. So um, it doesn't really seem to be uh, certainly as... Um, greater back down or, or uh, loss for the ABC as perhaps is being described. But of course, um, whenever you're dealing with the 
matters political. And whenever you're dealing with the ABC, um, it's very hard to see or find clear-eyed and cold analysis. Everything seems to be freighted or weighted with uh, partisan positions and perspectives that uh, affect the assessment. So depending on which newspapers you're reading this morning or which media outlets you're listening to, um, you may get one assessment as to uh, which party has come out better as opposed to another assessment you may get when you when you hear another. But in any event, I think it's good for all concerned, quite frankly, that it's resolved. Whether or not it's resolved politically remains to be seen. I see that the ALP and the Greens are out there with renewed calls for a investigation as to whether or not Mr Porter is a fit and proper person. And I expect that notwithstanding the conclusion of these proceedings on the basis that they have been concluded, uh, the political matters will still be pursued. Moving on then, Clive Palmer, always an entertaining individual and a uh, the sort of litigant that one would like to breed from. <laughs> where would we well, be without him? Yes, well, where would we indeed be without him? Uh, you were telling me just before we started recording that uh, his loss in the federal court uh, in respect of his use as found of the uh, classic Twisted Sister uh, recording, We're Not Going to Take It, is not over. Apparently, he's not going to take no. the fact that he was found to have breached their copyright and used it uh, without permission and without payment, and um, on it goes. Yeah, he's uh, filed an appeal, which, is, I mean, we don't know the basis on which he's, he's appealing. I haven't seen the documents. It was reported this morning in one of the outlets that um, he's lodged an appeal. But we all know what it's like appealing from judgments that are heavily dependent on credit findings. And I've got to say, Justice Katzman analysed Mr Palmer's evidence uh, in a quite a detailed way and wasn't particularly complimentary about his, uh, his role as a witness in the case. It, it, paragraph 44, Her Honour described Mr Palmer as a most unimpressive witness and having then gone through his evidence in fine detail at 197 uh, concluded that his denials that he um, taken the lyrics from the Twisted Sister song defied common sense, flew in the face of the contemporaneous documents and were contradicted by evidence of his own witnesses. Um, it, was a, it was a pretty... Um, <laughs> pretty brutal sort of treatment of his evidence. So, how that's as good a, that's as good a judicial birching as you can possibly hope for. I would have thought. Yeah, I don't know how he's going to overcome that <laughs> in this appeal, but as usual, as you say, he will continue to entertain us. Oh yeah, I'm sure it'll be special leave applications <laughs> if it doesn't go his way in the full federal court. But uh, yeah, he's um, he, he's certainly um, entertaining, but. <laughs> Whether or not he's going to try to challenge those findings of fact or whether he accepts them, I've got no idea. I haven't been following it that closely. What I have been following closely, however, is something that affects you and I, and that is the Design Building Practitioners Act. Now, we have a CPD coming up next week, which deals uh, in detail with the question of the regulations, which have just been put forward and come into effect shortly. Perhaps not the most thrilling topic of all time, but certainly one that's of importance uh, to practitioners in this area. The other thing that we're going to be looking at, and we're going to discuss it in a more detailed way in the next segment, is 
how to plead the claim that might now be available pursuant to Section 37 of the Design Building Practitioners Act and Duty of Care. And uh, as we'll discuss, we found people simply presenting this as a fait accompli, that is to say, here's the duty, you've breached it because there are defects. But some pleading cases that have recently run have established it's not quite that simple and it's not a case whereby pursuant to, say, the statutory warranties under the Home Building Act, uh, it, you can simply assert the duty and assert defects as if to say, ipso facto, there has been a breach. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the problem is uh, people are just tacking it on the end of a home warranty case, or a home, a, a implied warranties case. And warranties obviously focus on outcomes. They look to see whether or not there is a defect whereas the duty is looking at conduct and whether or not the standard of care has been met. So they're different concepts to start with, but you've got to, just because the Act imposes a duty on relevant people doesn't mean that it describes the scope and nature of the duty and what standard of care is required to discharge the duty. For example, a builder may be able to say that an ordinary competent builder in certain circumstances would discharge the duty simply by engaging competent subcontractors or being on site at various times to ensure that they're able to inspect certain aspects of the work. Uh, if they're not on the tools, so to speak, then what is it that you would say a builder ought to do to discharge the duty? So those sorts of issues really come into play, I think, when you're starting to plead a breach of a duty under the Act. The other thing, of course, is that unlike the home warranty cases, it's an apportionable claim, so it introduces concurrent wrongdoers and the involvement of others in the, um, the the loss that's been caused to the plaintiff. Yes, well, we'll talk about that, as I say, in a little bit more detail in the next segment where we really review what we're going to address. But one of the things that certainly needs to be considered is the interplay between that duty introduced by Section 37 and the Civil Liability Act, because those provisions of the Civil Liability Act, not only of apportionment, but also as to what the duty is and how one proves it, are all expressly incorporated within Part 4 of the Design Building Practitioners Act. But of course, together with the Design Building Practitioners Act, we've also got the Residential Apartment Buildings Compliance and Enforcement Powers Act of 2020. And uh, this is all part of the legislative, legislative attempt by the Parliament to deal with inadequate works, particularly in residential building complexes, large-scale developments. And Ian, you've been looking a little bit at the compliance powers and the capacity of the Building Commissioner to address problems within that activities or those activities in this industry. Yeah, it's probably fair to say that there's, a, there's at least one CPD just trying to understand the, how the two acts interplay. Take, for example, the, the provisions that deal with what happens at the end of a project in terms of the design compliance declarations and so on. The new regs of the Design of Building Practitioners Act set out a number of things that have to occur. The Act requires that prior to making an application for a building, an, an occupation certificate, certain things have to be disclosed and, and done by the person making the application. And that has to be done, I think, 14 days before the OC is applied for. But under the other Act, the Residential Apartment Building Act, that has to be done, uh, among other things, six months before. And you can't comply, you can't obtain a, an, an occupation certificate having not 
gone through, jumped through the various hoops in, in each of the two acts, there seems to be a little bit of inconsistency. The other thing is that there's quite a quite a lot of power given to the uh, commissioner under the uh, the new act. When I say the new act, the residential apartments um, act power to go onto the property to seize documents, to seize things, to um, require documents to be handed over and, and other access to other parts of the property and so on. They're quite extensive powers. They don't need a search warrant, for example. There is power to obtain a search warrant, but they can go on and do things without the uh, search warrant first being obtained. So the Commission's got quite far-reaching powers under this Act, and the Act's seem to have come out at, at, at the same time with the intention that they would complement one another. But there are some, on my brief reading of the two of them so far, there's some inconsistencies that would need to reconcile somehow. Well, I'm sure they will all play out in due course and uh, hopefully the Building Commissioner can do something to address what seems to be a fairly significant, wouldn't quite say endemic, but certainly significant problem in terms of a number of developments that are being constructed. And the last thing I just wanted to mention as part of this introductory material is that on the 12th of May, the Commonwealth Parliament passed the Migration Amendment Brackets Clarifying International Obligations for Removal, N Brackets, Bill 2021, which is now moving to the Senate. And this seems to be another piece of legislation in the context of uh, refugee detainment, which deals with decisions that have been made by the Federal Court as to the application of the Migration Act. I don't profess to have any great expertise in this area, but I would commend our listeners to an article in the Saturday paper recently which reported on this Act and its impact, particularly upon those that are neither granted refugee status nor can be returned to their country of origin and the impact of potentially indefinite detention of such persons uh, having regard to Australia's obligations internationally um, under things such as the Rome Statute. It was an excellent article and something of an eye-opener in terms of um, yet another step in this space which um, uh, seems to create further tensions between domestic politics and domestic law and international obligations associated with refugees and asylum seekers. But that's as much as I think we can say at the moment. Yeah. Ian, it's been a pleasure to discuss recent events with you in Always this first segment of, of Law Talking. And I'll see you in segment two with a couple of our colleagues, Declan Byrne and Fahim Anwar, to dive deeper into the question of the Design Building Practitioners Act. Thanks, Frank. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Frank Hicks here, and I'm joined by Declan Byrne and Fahim Anwar to talk about the Design Building Practitioners Act and the regulations which have uh, recently passed and will shortly come into effect. Hello, Declan. How are you? G'day, Frank. Good. Excellent. Fahim, how's things? Yeah, very good, Frank. Good to be on the podcast again. Excellent. It's lovely to have you here as well. A couple of things, housekeeping matters. Firstly, there's a CPD next Tuesday dealing with these regulations and also the question of pleading, which uh, we hope will be of interest and significance to all of the practitioners in this area. And I'll be talking a little bit about the question of pleading and what needs to be articulated 
in the statement of claim or list statement as drawn, having regard to the requirements of the legislation. But first, let's talk about regulations. Now, firstly, Declan, the regulations are passed. When do they come into force? Uh, The majority of them come into force 1 July. But something surprising from the new regulations is that the insurance requirement, that is for all the design professionals to hold insurance, doesn't actually kick in until 30 June 2023. So there's been a two-year reprieve on that part of the regulation. And are you aware of any reasons for that? Is that simply to allow the PI insurers to get themselves in order? Or, uh, I, I, or I think is that's it... right, yeah. I don't think yeah. there's been a specific reason profit, but that, I think that's the likely one. Right, Okay. Now, Fahim, you've had a look at these regulations. There's a lot of nuts, a lot of bolts um, associated with these things. Just running through, perhaps without reference to all of the gory detail, what sort of things uh, are going to be in play or has uh, been applied by way of refinement to the Design, Building and Practitioners Act by these regulations? I think the biggest thing that the regulations have done by way of refinement is refine the definition of building work such that the definition of building work for the purposes of Section 4.1 is a Class 2 building, so which is essentially um, residential apartment blocks. However, it also includes things like mixed-use residential and commercial buildings, so um, you know, you've, where you've got a high-rise residential with some retail spaces or commercial spaces at the bottom and things like that. And most importantly, it won't capture your single dwellings. I see. And we'll come back to that question of definition shortly. But what else do these regulations do having regard to the balance of the provisions of the Act, just in brief terms? Sure. So it provides effectively the meat on the bones in terms of things like registration requirements for design practitioners and professional engineers and so on. We've got the insurance requirements, which Declan alluded to. We've also got a uh, code of practice, uh, which has been brought in at Schedule 4 of the regulations. We've got CPD requirements. The regulation also sets out some penalty notice offences to enable enforcement of the Act as well. And just some of the paperwork requirements to give effect to the obligations in the Act about, you know, giving notice before you think you're going to get an occupation certificate and giving compliance certificates before a construction certificate is issued, all that sort of all that sort of thing. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that is detail that will be uh, essential for us to get across and to be aware of in terms of advising those that we talk to. Let's just talk about this definition of building work that appears under the regulations. Now, That is a definition which uh, is set out pursuant to Section 4 of the Design Building Practitioners Act. Is that right? It is. I see. And is that a looking at Section 4 of the Act, uh, it specifies the regulations may prescribe additional work that is building work for the purposes of the Act and under subsection 2B, exclude work from being building work for the purposes of the Act. So, is your understanding of the regulations that the definitional provisions operate to exclude work from being building building work for the purposes of the Act? There's a bunch of exclusions. There's sort of a grab bag of things that have been excluded, but the, the high-level ones are things like exempt development are excluded, waterproofing work if it's done as part of a a renovation in a single dwelling is excluded. The repair, renovation or protective treatment of a fire system, 
fire safety system is excluded for some reason, and otherwise it picks up the exclusions from the definition of residential building work under the Home Building Act. So as I say, it's a bit of a, a bit of a grab bag of exclusions. And is that your understanding as well, Fahim? Yeah, no, that, that's very much my understanding. Well, it appears there's an interesting issue that may be developing between uh, Section 4 and the provisions of the regulations in that regard and Section 36 because Section 36 of the Design and Building Practitioners Act 2020 actually provides for a suite of definitions applicable to this part. And, of course, this part is Part 4 and Part 4 is where Section 37 and the statutory duty of care appears. Now, under that provision, building work is described to include, include, I should say, and emphasise residential building work within the meaning of the Home Building Act 1989, and a building is said to have the same meaning as it has in the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act 1979, and the definition of building under that particular provision is quite uh, broad includes part of a building, any structural part of a building, any temporary structure or part of temporary structure, but does not include a manufactured home, movable dwelling or associated structure. Have you given any consideration as to um, which of these definitional provisions might apply, whether or not there's a consistency or inconsistency, and how the uh, legislation may be construed having regard to Section 4, Section 36 and the regulations? as to the application of Part 4 and, in particular, the duty of care. Declan, can I start with you? I I think this is definitely an open issue. I I think there's a good argument to be made that the legislature decided to give different definitions in in Section 4 and Section 36 to the term building work and that on its face the statutory duty of care um, in in Section 37, that the definition of building work that that picks up on its face seems to include the commercial building and is not limited to the class two buildings that the rest of the act is but i think i think that's an issue that's uh, that's uh, ripe for dispute and no doubt we'll be seeing some litigation on that in the near future for him would you agree there's a whole question of the you know the classic proposition that the specific prevails over the general when it comes to definitional and um, uh, statements of position in contracts and statutes yeah i do frank i mean I certainly agree with Declan that the meaning of building work for the purposes of Part 4 of the Act is unclear in light of the refinement of the definition under Section 4. One other curious provision in Section 36 is Section 36 sub 2, which says in this part a reference to building work applies only to building work relating to a building within the meaning of this part. And that seems to lend some support to the idea that the definition of building work in Part 4 is different from definition of building work more broadly under the legislation. So I tend to lean a little bit towards the idea that the building work for the purposes of Part 4 may be broader than what we have under Section 4, but it's very much an open issue and that I'm sure will be uh, litigated in future. Fahim, you were mentioning offline that you, you you read the second reading speech and that there was an allusion there to Parliament intending it to have a broader operation. Is that right? Yeah, there is certainly, I mean, the second reading speech does not in any way 
indicate a legislative intention to limit this to class two buildings only. So it may be that in future, the scope of the application of the legislation will be broadened, but there's certainly nothing to indicate that the parliament intended it to be so limited. Well, I mean, it's it's obvious when one reads the legislation, or at least an, an obvious question arises, is why would they have a definition of building work for this part under Section 36 if it was intended that the definition under Section 4, which applies to this Act, would apply consistently? I mean, there would just be no reason to offer a definition under Section 36 specifically for Part 4 if Parliament intended that the definitional provisions for the purposes of the whole of the Act under Section 4 were to apply. But that brings us to the question of Section 37, and obviously since uh, these statutory provisions were enacted, we have seen a uh, number of amendments made to statements of claim and to list statements, usually by simply, quite frankly, tacking on a few paragraphs to allege that a duty of care existed with respect to a builder or a uh, uh, certifier or a subcontractor or a design consultant, and that that duty of care was breached necessarily because there are defects and usually simply cross-referencing the same particulars that appear with respect to allegations of breach of contract or breach of warranty. Now, one of the things we're going to be talking about during the course of our CPD is the question of pleading and the importance of pleading with regards to this statutory duty of care and negligence, particularly given that it is a cause of action for pure economic loss, albeit one enshrined within Section 37. Now, Declan and Fahim, have you considered at all the interplay of the Design Building Practitioners Act and the Civil Liability Act, in particular, apportionment for example Declan if we can start with you well I think I think it's been a, it's, as you say it's been a live issue in most large building cases and everyone's been frantically trying to amend and understand since the act came in uh, almost a year ago now wow in my experience everyone's still grappling with the required level of, of, of detail required in those allegations and and how the uh, proportionate liability stuff works it's certainly made everything more complicated that's for sure yes. Well, there's certainly no doubt that the, the Design Building Practitioners Act is subject to the Civil Liability Act under Section 41.3, and obviously everyone has immediately um, addressed the fact that that means claims under Section 37 are, apportion are apportionable. Yeah. Uh, but there are also significant, uh, significant matters associated with the Civil Liability Act in respect of allegations of a duty of care, and it incorporates the important provisions of the Civil Liability Act in particular, Section 5B and the uh, question of general principles uh, and the question of negligence. And, for example, Section 5 capital B1 provides that a person is not negligent in failing to take precautions against the risk of harm unless the risk was foreseeable, the risk was not insignificant, and in the circumstances a reasonable person in the person's position would have taken the precautions. And further, Section uh, 5B subsection 2 states that in determining whether a reasonable person would have taken precautions against a risk of harm, the court has to consider the probability that the harm would occur if care was not taken, 
the likely seriousness of the harm, the burden of taking precautions to avoid the risk of harm, and the social utility of the activity that creates the harm. These are all matters which, quite frankly, I'm not sure that all of our colleagues uh, who deal day-to-day with building and construction issues have commonly thought about when articulating in general, um, if not too brief of terms, uh, a claim under Section 37. These are the elements that are required to be addressed as to con- by way of contentions of fact and particulars and other matters to establish that a particular party, whether it be a design consultant, a builder, a subcontractor, or perhaps even a certifier, firstly had a duty, secondly what the content of, or substance of that duty was, thirdly how that duty was breached by either acts or omissions, and fourthly as a matter of causation how that caused the economic loss arising from defects. I've got to say, in my uh, examination of statements of claim, list statements that have been amended to include these causes of action, or indeed filed to include these causes of action, these things are usually absent or almost pleaded as a matter of res ipsa loquit or ipso facto. Mm. Have you seen similar things for Heyman Declan? Uh, If... Sorry, I'll start. Um, that's been my observation. Um, these are at best addressed in a cursory manner, but probably more commonly not addressed at all. And the other practical difficulty I've had, even when I've been asked to draw up pleadings, often to properly address these matters requires um, usually some work to be done usually by way of input from experts, um, and that's often not has not been done when it comes time to prepare the uh, pleadings. No, I, I, d- I definitely agree with that comment. I mean, the, having to articulate the precise failure to take reasonable care um, in respect of each defect is a, it's a pretty onerous task, and it's not simply the strict liability sort of approach that people take to pleading the, the home building warranty claims. And so I think it, it does mean that you really have to have your expert evidence done at the beginning of the proceedings so that you can you can have that with you when, you, when you're drafting. Um, I, I'm told by the medical negligence practitioners that they had a similar adjustment to how to plead properly under the Civil Liability Act when it first came in oh God, almost 20 years ago now. And so I think we're going to have to go through, the, the building professionals are going to have to go through a similar adjustment period. And I think it's, it's not just an issue for claimants and owners. I, I think it's also going to be an issue for builders and defendants because the other issue, Frank, um, I, I think is going to come up is Section 5, Capital O, which is the standard of care for professionals. This displaces the the test under 5B if you can establish that you did something, if a professional did something in accordance with, uh, uh, what is it, widely accepted practice in the area. So I think that's another issue that's going to come up. Well, certainly there's going to be a need for the development of expert evidence, but there's also going to have to be a fairly careful analysis of the facts in any particular case. Mm. Mm. I mean, we're all familiar, or at least should be familiar, with the requirements to assert obligations or potential liabilities of concurrent wrongdoers and the need to assert the necessary elements to rely on those provisions being the existence or identity of a person, the basis for a cause of action in contract or tort, identifying the duty, scope and breach 
and the loss of damage for which the concurrent wrongdoer is alleged to also be liable for in the context of the claims and the matters of causation. So we're going to have to take those statements of principle from cases such as UCAC and Avante Developments and deal with them in the context of an allegation of the existence of a duty and perhaps more importantly, the breach of that duty and matters of causation. And as I say, in the CPD that we've got coming up, we'll be looking at these matters and in particular those requirements of the Civil Liability Act, Section 5, Capital B, Section 5, Capital D, Section 5, Capital O, and how they will impact the uh, assertion of these claims and whether or not such claims will survive uh, strike out applications if brought, even notwithstanding the uh, practice note associated with list statements, for example, in the technology and construction list. Well, Declan, Fahim, we might leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on this topic. And I certainly look forward to presenting with you at the CPD and Ian Roberts joining us to deal with this whole question of the Design Building Practitioners Act, the regulations, and how to properly articulate a claim under Section 37. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank you for listening to Law Talking. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and are not representative of Greenway Chambers. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review? You can also listen to Law Talking on Spotify, your favourite podcast app, or our website. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.